Shalom, and thank you for listening to Beit Zaid Messages. If you enjoy this teaching, consider joining us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. at 465 Lee Highway in Verona, Virginia, for our morning Shabbat services. Or watch the service live stream on YouTube, Facebook, or on our website at BeitZaid.org/live. May the Father bless you richly with the hearing of this. Anyway. Uh... You know, you get stuck on the first line, first paragraph, first chapter. Well, I, I made it through the first chapter, but there were a few interesting things in this Parsha uh, that I wanted to point out, I guess, um, but I won't go into real depth with. But, but again, this is talking about the death of Sarah and, and um, uh, the need to, uh, uh, for Abraham to buy a burial plot for her. And, uh, but then the next step was Isaac needs a wife, and, and I guess... You know, it was time, but probably Sarah's death really brought to uh, the forefront, forefront of Abraham's mind. I'm not saying he thought he was going to live forever, but we all kind of fall victim to just, hey, tomorrow, 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 and we forget that one day that tomorrow will be our last tomorrow. So um, it's really neat, uh, Eliezer, the, the, the longest serving and, and seemingly the most trusted and faithful servant of uh, Abraham is tasked with going to find Isaac a wife. He, uh, he's really, you could tell he really takes it seriously too, and he's like, well, I'm making a vow to you, but what if I can't keep the vow? And, and Abraham makes provision, so he's like, hey, if this doesn't happen, you're released. But, uh, and we've all done this and probably done it the wrong way and at the wrong time and probably shouldn't do it, but in this case, Eliezer, in his mind, he prays. He says, here's a test, Father, um, uh, for knowing who the right person is. And uh, First Fruits did a neat story or an article, and a lot of those are pulled from different uh, uh, Torah Club series. But it talks about the name of Abraham, praying in the name of Abraham. And if you look at Eliezer, he, he, he invokes, when he's talking to the father, he's reminding the father, hey, I'm here uh, on, be, on behalf of Abraham. Eliezer, which they don't even mention his name, it's presumed that that's who they're talking about, He's not out for the glory. He's not looking to make a name for himself. He's, he's there to serve. And so he reminds God, hey, I'm here on behalf of Abraham. I'm here for Abraham. And I'm sure that he knew the gravity of what he was doing, right? He knew about the promises to Abraham. It's not like he was just like, oh, I work at 7-Eleven, I show up and I clock in. No, he was, he was interwoven part of Abraham's camp. So I thought that was neat in... Uh, this, the article goes on to talk about how we use, we pray in the name of Jesus, right, in the name of Yeshua, and it's just sort of a period, end of story thing. We just get in that habit. It's just the end. But really what we're doing is we're saying, Father, not in my merit, not because I'm so righteous, not because my mission is so worthy, but in the merit of the name of your son, Yeshua. And I don't know, it was really a neat reminder, like, do we need to do the right thing? Do we need to strive for righteousness? Do we need to do our part? Yeah, we need to do our part. But Yeshua ultimately is the one that uh, his merit is what, what makes us right with the Father and uh, even, I, I think, allows us to come before the throne, right? So I thought that was a neat uh, connection. So I, I couldn't resist, though, a little bit of math. Uh, and it's talking about the ten camels, remember? And uh, recently, you know, we've been reading about, uh, you know, traditionally it's considered that there were ten tests of faith 
for Abraham, you know, sort of culminating with the uh, binding of Isaac. So 10 is considered to be the, uh, the number for testing, and so here's 10 camels. Maybe it's coincidental, but I don't think so. So who was the test for? Well, it was for Rebecca. And to put math to it and just to help me see, okay, what, what's that really mean to water 10 camels? Well, uh, I learned about camels a little bit this week. Uh, first of all, their hump is just fat. It's not water. They have special blood cells that are more of an oval shape instead of round that helps them deal with extreme hydration, so to speak, and extreme dehydration. And that's how they are able to store and utilize water. So uh, it's not the hump. Now, if they get hungry, which they can also go a long time, that's where the hump comes in. That's just fat. So I'm a uh, one-hump camel myself, and uh, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. So anyway... Uh, this is true of cattle, but uh, so I googled, of course, to see, well, how much can a camel drink? And, and it, you know, there's different numbers out there, but, it, but essentially, let's imagine about 30 gallons in about 15 minutes. And, and that, that seems reasonable. If, if cows get really thirsty, uh, something's wrong, and, and the water supply is disrupted, when they're really thirsty, they can drink down some water in a hurry. So 30 gallons, I, I guess maybe the camels were that thirsty, maybe not, but let's just say 30 gallons. You got 10 camels. That's 300 gallons of water. Uh, and remember, it, talking about the deep, 8.34. Don't ask me next week because I probably won't remember that, but I know it's about eight, right? Eight and a third ga- uh, pounds per gallon of water. And, hey, the well's deep. Now, it doesn't say this well's deep necessarily, but, you know, you could, it's, it's down there somewhere, right? So not only do you have to, like, pour the water, you've got to let the jar down, get up, I don't know, a few gallons. I mean, we have five-gallon buckets, maybe three gallons at a time. Um, so 8.34 gallons, uh, pounds per gallon, 10 camels, 30 gallons, that's 300 gallons, that's, uh, 2,502 pounds of water. That's a ton and a quarter. So, and it's, you could see watering one camel, maybe two, but 10, that's pushing it into the, to the realm of, you know, a test, really. You, you, You really have to do it. So the first one, hey, I made it through that, the second, and, and just the uh, the spirit of Rebecca, of, of um, you know, she, it, it doesn't portray her as trying to do it for any other reason than it's just the goodness of her heart, because she's a good person, and she has a servant's heart. And uh, she didn't know what was about to go down. She was just helping this guy out. So um, so anyway, I thought that was really neat, a couple of things, that, and I could figure out how to just sort of fit it in the main body of the message, so... But that's for free, as is everything else, right? <laughs> and you get you get what you paid for. So, uh, Hiya Sarah, uh, uh, Sarah's life, Genesis twenty three one. Sarah lived to be one hundred and twenty seven years old. These were the years of Sarah's life. Uh, some of this I borrowed heavily from uh, Darren Huckey's uh, five minute Torah commentary. Um, so we, you see the title of the Parsha, and we kind of know how Parsha titles work, but, you know, if just on the outside, you think, oh, it must be about her life. Well, it's not really. It says Sarah's life. These are the years of Sarah's life, and she died. So it's kind of like, hey, what happened to the life? But, um, you know, the English translation sort of, you know, you, you, you can't get a direct word-for-word translation, right? You've got to sort of make it fit, right, and get the meaning in there. Uh, so in English, it's, it's made to read, like this, where it kind of, okay, it flows, it makes sense. Uh, but if you just think just the Hebrew, it uses the same phrase at the beginning and the end. Haya Sarah, Haya Sarah, the beginning and the end. And it seems redundant. 
So was Moses just, you know, trying to keep the reading light and lively and make it more poetic? I don't think so. I mean, the reason it's repeated, there's a reason for it. Uh, And we know that the Torah, it doesn't waste, you know, a single letter. It doesn't waste a word. It doesn't waste a space. Even the space between the words is considered significant. Um, So so anyway, again, we have this sort of seemingly redundant expression, the life of Sarah. So there must be some deeper insight into this. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes that deeper insight kind of drives me crazy. It's like, oh, come on, guys. You know, really? Like, you know, are, are you just stretching here? But... Maybe sometimes, but but again, you can't ignore the fact that it's significant, that it's there twice. So, uh, and, and think about it, or this made me think, throughout the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the concept of life after death is really never plainly mentioned, right? It's not said, this is what's going to happen, you're going to die, and then this is going to happen. I mean, so, I'm like, yeah, okay, so where did... How do we get this idea that there's life after death when it's not sort of explicit and says this is exactly what it is? Well, we do see it explicitly mentioned uh, in the the days of the apostles in those scriptures. Um, however, the sages and apostles had a firm belief in this concept based on the understanding of the Tanakh alone. Again, there was no New Testament before the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament's written based on the Old Testament. So how did they come to this strong conviction that there's life after death? Are they just trying to make themselves feel better, right? Are they just trying to create, weave a story? So like, well, you know, Grandma, she's surely in a better place. Um, But I'll find my place here. Uh, So again, the life of Sarah is mentioned twice. Uh, The sages deduce that the Torah speaks of Sarah's life in this world and in her life in the world to come. You know, the life in this world had ended, but she would be resurrected one day. And they're adamant about that. So there's still a deba- there was a debate in the days of Yeshua, and uh, most of us know it. It's the Pharisees had one point of view. The Sadducees had another point of view. The Sadducees said there's no plain, explicit r- reading that says, hey, you die, uh, you go on to a, a second life. The Pharisees, though, held that there was life after death, right? This was not, uh, you're not like a, you know, a bug or or something like that. You just die and you just become part of the earth and that's just part of the the circle of life, right? Uh, We're not meant to be just fertilizer. (laughs) So anyway, um, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees had this debate. So in Torah, you know, if we look back in Torah Club over the years, and this was very controversial in my mind when I first heard of the concept, but the more you learn about it, the more you realize it, uh, it's not too far-fetched or crazy, is that the Pharisees and Yeshua's doctrines were not opposed to each other. Now, did Yeshua correct some of the religious leaders, right, when they got off, when they ignored the weightier matters and got too, too into the details? He said, hey, keep doing those details, but make sure you focus on the most important things. But one of those concepts that Yeshua and the Pharisees agreed on was the resurrection of the dead, right? Again, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they challenged Yeshua and said, prove it. How can you know, how can you say that there's a resurrection of the dead? Well, 
Matthew 22, 31 and 32. I think we have a, a verse. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I mean, all those guys were dead, right? So how can he say he's not the God of the dead, but he's, he's the God of the living because they're not dead? So uh, at least in, in the uh, uh, just physical sense. So um, th these were not the only evidence that Yeshua uh, gave, and, and actually he settled the debate pretty conclusively himself, right? when it comes to resurrection of the dead, because he himself was resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. But now Messiah has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a man. So we were created not to, um, to be born and to die and just sort of be part of the... Um, biology of the earth you know just evolution is sort of simple uh thing we're just clumps of cells walking around highly intelligent but then we're dead we were meant to we were created by god to move from this life into another life and um so our life doesn't end once our physical bodies stop functioning so but we have to deal with reality and abraham had to deal with reality too right so it's not that he, he i'm sure that god had made him aware of the resurrection of the dead but just the same his wife had died who he loved very much and they'd spent their lives together so he's got to pick up the pieces and he's heartbroken but what do you do uh, there's no waiting right she's she's died he has to tend to her body but remember abraham has not one inch of the land that's been promised to him he doesn't own it he, he doesn't have any claim to it so uh this is my one chapter we get into so uh, yeah, Abraham's been, it's been about 40 years, roughly, since God said, hey, this is going to be your land. You're going to have lots of descendants. Uh, God made the covenant with him. 40 years is a long time. I'm 49, so, you know, I feel like it's been a while. My, my aching body tells me it's been a while. So, so he owned no land. Um, and just a reminder, that covenant is Genesis 17, 8. I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are now foreigners, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession. I will be their God. But as far as descendant, well, we have Isaac's on the scene, so part of the covenant's been fulfilled. But as far as owning any land, having any possession of the land, any right to the land, uh, there was no sign of life there. Uh, so Abraham has to take care of Sarah's body. He has to, to, uh, to do the right thing, right? Uh, so he, has, he approaches the sons of Het, so the locals. In Genesis 23, 4, uh, Abraham says, I am a foreigner living as an alien, alien with you. Let me have a burial site with you so that I can bury my dead wife. And, you know, Abraham's reputation is solid. He's, he is known as a righteous man. He's, he's, lived and interacted in this world he's separate but you know is he has um relationships with with the local people and so the local people say in genesis 23 6 listen to us my lord you are a prince of god among us so choose any of our tombs to bury your dead not one of us would refuse you his tomb for burying the dead 
And so Genesis 23, 7 and 9, Abraham got up, bowed before the people of the land, the sons of Het, and spoke with them. If it is your desire to help me bury my dead, then listen to me. Ask Ephron, the son of Zohar, to give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, the one end of his field. He should sell it to me in your presence at its full value. Then I will have a burial site of my own. So we know how gift-giving works sometimes. I mean, it is a good thing, but it also, in business and in different things like that, you know, you're like, you sort of give a favor to get a favor. You become obligated. Hey, you receive the gift. And, and again, I'm not bashing giving of gifts. Uh, but when you get into sticky situations like that where someone's like, oh, no, you can just have it, then you're kind of obligated. And the other thing is if, if it's given to you, and then the person says, hey, uh, we'd like to bury uh, some of our folks in this cave as well. And what are you going to do? Because it's not yours. So it was very important to Abraham to own the cave. And all of this was done in a very public setting, right? Um, sort of imagine the elders at the city gates, right? All this took place in public. It wasn't a backroom deal. It was there for all to see. And... Uh, so, but <clears throat> three times, this guy Ephron, he says, I give it to you. Uh, you know, I give, you, I give it to you, I give it to you, I give it to you. Um, but Abraham refuses. So finally, uh, it's kind of funny, I'm not making light of it, but finally Ephron, he essentially says, well, what's 400 silver shekels among friends, right? So he kind of says the price, and, and Abraham didn't uh, haggle, he didn't negotiate, he, uh, he paid the, the sum, and I think it was... Uh, you know, uh, a, a certainly a reasonable price, and, and some would say an extravagant price. So, uh, so anyway, again, thinking about the life of Sarah, Sarah's life, you know, twice. Uh, wh why, why in this one chapter, there's tw 20 verses, you got one line that's dedicated to, you know, Sarah, and then the rest pretty much is all about this negotiation, this purchase of the, the land and the cave for burial. As big as the Bible is, we're trying to cover all the, all the history, all the, the teachings, all the wisdom that we would need for living, and we've got 20 verses dedicated just to this little land deal. Uh, it's one whole chapter in Genesis. Uh, so, so it's really important, apparently, because it's just the sheer size of it. Uh, and there's a lot you could say about this, but I, I think Abraham's purchase of this land has been a testimony for roughly 4,000 years. We're talking about this, this land deal, this purchase of the cave 4,000 years later. And it's for 4,000 years we're talking about the right of God's people, the Jewish people specifically, this, this land purchase uh, testifies to the legal right to the land, right? They legally bought it. It was public. It was documented a lot for that era, right? Uh, and here we still have documentation 4,000 years. So the cave of uh, Machpelah, it's in Hebron. Anybody remember where Hebron is? I, I didn't quite remember. It's just one of those mappy places, right, somewhere in the Bible. <laughs> well, it's the West Bank is what we know today, right? Uh, so... Legal right, Abraham and his descendants. Of course, we have the covenant with, uh, between the father, Abraham, and the land specifically, and the descendants. Um, 
And it's all, it starts right here in Hebron, modern-day West Bank. So it really makes you think. So who's buried in the cave? Uh, if, you, if you go real deep, some would say even Adam and Eve are buried there. I don't know about that, but uh, it's neat to think about and talk about. But we're pretty sure we know, as the Bible documents it and is true, uh, Sarah, of course, later Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, uh, Rebecca, and Leah. And remember, Rachel died uh, where they weren't physically close enough to, for her to be buried in the cave. But you know who else is not buried there? Ishmael's not buried there, right? And I'm not bashing Ishmael. I mean, he actually uh, he helped bury Abraham in the cave of Machpelah. I mean, he was part of the family, right? The thing is, is God had a very specific line that he wanted to follow, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when the kids were little, and I still do it, and say, well, when you say, who's your God? They're like, well, God. I'm like, well, who? Well, in, in my mind, when you describe who your God is, my God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So it's specific. It matters. Of course, there's lots of uh, terrible things happening in Israel now. Lots of um, crazy talk, like from the river to the sea, and, and really what that means is the extermination of Jewish people um, in the land of Israel, for a start. Um, it doesn't make any sense, but it's the enemy, right? The enemy of God is the enemy of God's people. So it's been happening for forever. And the enemy's always been trying to disrupt and destroy the promises of God, God's covenant, uh, God's chosen people and God's chosen land. So, hey, it's easy for me to, here in Verona to talk about this stuff because I'm not over there. Uh, it, it wasn't my family that was slaughtered. But in the grand scheme of things, in time, this is not the first time this sort of thing's happened. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, where are Israel's attackers over the ages? Uh, where's Haman from the Amalekites? There's no Haman. Uh, he did some terrible things and tried to do some really terrible things, but he's gone. Uh, where are the Hittites, the Jebusites, Amorites? Where's the Assyrian Empire? Where's the Babylonian Empire? Where's the Roman Empire? I didn't write this, but where's Hitler? Where's Nazi Germany? I mean, terrible things happened to the Jewish people. But the Jewish people are still here. They're still God's people, still have the covenants and the promises, and their attackers, uh, even though they did great harm, are no more. So we can rely on and trust two things. One, there's, this is not the only life, so it's not that we, life should be preserved, but the fact is, is we're, we're not just dogs that die in the street. You know, God's got something next for us, right? There's life after death. And the other thing is he keeps his promises always, and he keeps his covenants. So no, no matter how bad it gets, uh, he's keeping his covenants. Now, is the end near, like Lisa was talking about, like he's preparing us? I mean, it's both terrifying and, you know, thrilling at the same time. Think, hey, God's doing something. Or did he bring us to this earth for this time? Like we're going to live in, the, in those ages? I mean, I don't know, but we're at least a step along the way, right? If not this generation, the next generation. If not the next generation, the next generation. So just because we're not in the thick of it necessarily uh, doesn't mean that it's not really important for us to be here. 
So I don't know if this is a true story or not. I've heard it bantied around the internet, which kind of means solid, right? Uh, but I've heard it before. And, and if the story is not true, the principle is true. So uh, the story goes that King Frederick of the Great of Prussia, he asked his physician to give him proof for the existence of God. Prove to me that God exists. And his re physician replied, Your majesty, the continued existence of the Jews is the proof. And it's true, the Jewish people are the most persecuted people in history. Down through all the centuries, there have been repeated attempts to destroy them, and yet they are here, and they are fulfilling uh, the prophecies. And they're fulfilling the, the God's mission, ultimately, is to be a light to the nations. The reason we're here is because of the faithfulness of the Jewish people, of God, the Jewish people. Uh, we know that through Yeshua we have this light, but it, that doesn't replace, displace, do away with the physical land of Israel, the actual Jewish people, and the role that, that God has for them to play. So, uh, yeah, no other group has been so persecuted. The Jewish people miraculously survived. So God's plan to restore me and you and the whole world through Israel as the light to all the nations will not and cannot be thwarted. God's covenant promises to Abraham cannot and will not be broken. And so anyway, take heart. It's bad, but God is so good, and he's, he's doing great things, and I'm so grateful that we get to do it together. And I'll with that say Shabbat Shalom. Again, thanks for joining us for the Beit Zayit Messages podcast, an extension of Beit Zayit Messianic Congregation, a group of Jews and Gentiles, one in Messiah, currently meeting in Verona, Virginia. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review, along with a five-star rating, or give us a thumbs up wherever you're listening from. If you're interested in learning more about the Creator and His Word from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out our website at BeitZayit.org for helpful resources and more information. Until next time, Shalom.